Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're in the book of Acts, and we're stepping back once again, looking at Paul's travels and all the events leading up to his arrest and trial in Rome. So we're going to be camping here in chapters 23 to 26. And as we'd like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Thanks, Lord, for uh, allowing us to come together to study your word and to uh, glean from that the truths that you have given us and to uh, put it in our hearts to be uh, beacons to others to um, see that what you teach is true. And thank you for Mark and, and his uh, faithfulness in this study. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good evening, Mark. Howdy. It's uh, really good to be back with everyone. We've had a little break as my uh, work has interfered with these uh, Tuesday night sessions, but we are trying to spend a little bit of time here looking at the ramifications of Paul's trials in the latter part of the book of Acts. They have great uh, implications for us today as we look at the state of affairs of the kingdom of God and things going on in the Middle East and uh, in governments everywhere, we can grasp some wisdom from Paul here. And as we have seen over and over, Paul's wisdom came from him being a student of the Hebrew Scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament today. He was sent to Jerusalem, which was a long way from where he was born and raised in uh, present-day Turkey. He was sent down to Jerusalem to uh, be schooled by one of the greatest uh, Judean teachers who had ever lived, Gamaliel, there in the uh, first century. And uh, he had uh, commanding knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures, as well as a a good working knowledge of, of all the famous Greek literature of the day and age, much of which survives to this day and is studied uh, in uh, many Western schools still. But uh, when it came to his trial, he said over and over that his teaching and preaching was from the Hebrew Scriptures. It was the hope of Israel. And we've seen uh, in Acts 26 specifically that he uses the resurrection, and the hope of Israel as uh, synonymous terms. They are one and the same thing. And 
when we're talking about the resurrection, when we're talking about the hope of Israel, I mean, these are talking about Christ. Uh, Christ told us in the Gospel of John that he is the resurrection and the life. And that that's a basic statement that we've heard most of our lives, but it's incredibly important because what we have heard for hundreds of years about the resurrection is something totally different from just that the resurrection is Christ, as Christ said said it was. Uh, the hope of Israel, I'm reminded again of the elder elderly gentleman, Simeon, who was there waiting in the temple courtyard in Jerusalem because he had been promised by God that he would see the hope of Israel before he physically passed away. And he held up the child, you know, and we've, we've re- looked at that several times and read those quotes and so on. But so, so I want to make it clear when, we, when Paul's talking about the hope of Israel, when he's talking about the resurrection, I believe that he's talking about Christ Jesus and he, that all of these promises that were made in the Hebrew Scriptures over hundreds and hundreds of years are all different expressions of uh, the Messiah, of Jesus Christ. And so let's keep that in mind as we uh, go on. Now, I've also made the contention here, and I've personally become convinced that the only legitimate response to dispensational Zionism is a fulfilled view of Bible prophecy. I've been on the road for weeks and weeks and weeks, and I usually scan through the religious stations, and no matter what part of the country I'm in, I get I hear somebody trying to correlate the headlines with some prophetic prediction, and 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 then people call in and they're speculating about these imminent last days and the, these fulfillments and of course they're they're constantly <laughs> being proven wrong as the calendar continues to roll forward you know it, it's just uh, terrible it's just consumed our whole country this useless speculation that focuses on prophecy and the physical nation of Israel instead of Christ who is the true focus of prophecy but when when you take this fulfilled view that Christ has accomplished everything that he promised to do that was promised to Israel over hundreds of years you run the risk of being called a heretic and if you if you do a search on the internet for the hymenaean heresy you will literally come across hundreds of websites many of which are run by dispensational Zionists, but many others are not, are run by others, all equating anyone who suggests what I've just suggested here is a heretic, and Hymenaeus and Philetus uh, prove this. Now, so let's go to Second Timothy 2, where this comes from, and here we go. Of course, Paul is writing... Uh, to Timothy, this is uh, probably the last letter of Paul that we have. Uh, he's giving Timothy some last-minute instruction here. He says, Study to show yourself approved to God, a workman unashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane, empty babblings, for they will go on to more ungodliness, and their word will have growth like gangrene, 
of whom are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who missed the mark concerning the truth, saying the resurrection already has come, and overturn the faith of some. So, this is where this term Hymenaean heresy comes from. Anyone who suggests that the resurrection has already occurred is an instant heretic, according to these myriads of websites. And perhaps some of our listeners have been intrigued enough to do some research and have uh, have come across some of this uh, on the Internet. But if we look at the nature of the charge that Paul levels against these two guys, we, I think we'll get an understanding into these same views of Paul's resurrection that he is expressing at his trials and acts. And we're going to see that their heresy really doesn't prove what the critics might suggest it does just at a cursory glance. So let me try to move through this quickly. We've shown over and over that the promise of resurrection was made to Israel. And Paul has reiterated that in all of his trials. Like in Acts 24, verse 14, Paul said, I confess this to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the ancestral God believing all things according to that that was written in the Law and the Prophets, having hope toward God, which these themselves also admit of a resurrection about to occur, both of the just and the unjust. So, this promise of resurrection was an old covenant promise. And we spent a lot of time looking at Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones and the two sticks being joined together. And we saw how well that correlated to Paul's statements at his trials. We haven't gone through the book of Romans together, but Paul is making a defense of physical Israel in the Roman letter. He's writing to foreign non-Judean converts who are in Rome and who have already written off the physical nation of Israel as a lost cause and as totally gone from God's horizon or dashboard. And Paul makes lengthy arguments to say that this had not occurred yet at the time that he wrote the letter. There were still a righteous remnant to be saved in the synagogue communities, uh, in Rome, Roman synagogues specifically. And in the course of making that argument, Paul mentions that the promises that God had made to Israel were irrevocable. They were unconditional. And so if God said he was going to do something for Israel, there was nothing Israel could do or or not do to alter his purpose or his desire to keep that promise. And this is where, again, we find ourselves at loggerheads with our dispensational Zionist friends over and over again because they believe that God failed in his purpose or changed his plan in the middle because his own people rejected him and so on. It's just mind-boggling how anyone who claims to believe in the sovereignty of God could believe something like that. But Paul is reiterating that if God made a covenant promise that he could not and would not ever break it, no matter how unfaithful the other covenant partner was, and Israel was very unfaithful. 
So the Bible is contrasting constantly the faithfulness of God and the unfaithfulness of Israel. But the resurrection was a promise made to Israel that God was going to fulfill. We saw in Ezekiel 37 and in many other passages that we read that the the promised resurrection would be at the end of Israel's age. And we could prove incontrovertibly, really, that the resurrection is tied to the end of Israel's age. And this is where the dispensationalists have claimed the high ground because they recognize that and they teach that and they use that as proof since the resurrection hasn't occurred yet. God is obviously not through with physical Israel yet. And the the other views of prophecy cannot really effectively answer that. If we say, well, God finished all of his promises to Israel at the cross or at Pentecost or in A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed, but, but no, the resurrection hasn't occurred yet. And this would be the common view of most non-dispensational Christians uh, in America, at least, uh, and probably many other countries as well today. The problem is that is very inconsistent. And you, you either have to postpone the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel that Paul said would never be revoked or canceled, or you have to say that God tried but failed to keep his promise to Israel, or God somehow was able to end that commitment to old physical Israel and transfer it uh, somewhere else. This has also caused many to think that uh, the resurrection is a still future event that involves uh, physical corpses coming out of the ground, in spite of what Paul clearly wrote in the first Corinthian letter about the resurrection being spiritual as opposed to physical. Uh, I don't know when this crept into the Protestant creeds, uh, but, but it's been there for hundreds of years. None of these views are consistent. Dispensationalism is more consistent than the other ones, but dispensationalism is, is wrong because it postpones these promises to an indefinite time in the future. And as the New Testament was being written, we've seen over and over and over again, there was an immediate expectation that all of these promises were about to be fulfilled and that the age of physical Israel was about to end uh, at that time. I mean, and it's literally everywhere through the Bible, and it's even more evident when you get to a literal translation or even back to the Greek uh, manuscripts, you see this imminence, this this thing that it is being fulfilled as we speak. It, it is fulfilled, uh, as and, and I'm speaking from the point of view of the writers back in the first century. So we have all of these problems and inconsistencies with all of the popular views today. If we do say that the resurrection did occur uh, at the end of Old Covenant Israel's age, 
this would uh, match with what we've seen in Luke 21 and 22, where Christ says, For these are days of vengeance, when all things that have been written are to be fulfilled. And the, the context, all scholars agree, the context of Luke 21 is the utter and complete destruction of Jerusalem in the first century. And Christ, commenting on this destruction, says, These are the days of vengeance in which all things that have been written shall be fulfilled. I'm going to suggest, again, something that is very simple, but it is very different from what we have heard before. When Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians, he is contrasting the law to the gospel. And he says in Galatians 3.10 that as many of you are under works of the law are under a curse. Or, well, let me read it here uh, in a literal version. For as many are, are out of the works of the law, these are under a curse. For it has been written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things that have been written in the book of the law to do them. He's quoting Deuteronomy there. The law was a curse. The law created sin. In our sin is missing the mark. The law set out this incredibly high standard of continual high moral conduct. And so the law was so impressive that no one could uh, attain to it. And so every time you tried, you missed the mark, which is the literal meaning of sin. And so the law produced sin, and sin produced death. And Paul writes about this in a lot in a lot of his letters. So if we say that, uh, that, that the sting of death is still present, it would logically follow that the law is still present, or the curse of the law that Paul spent so much time writing about is still with us today. And our dispensational friends may not argue with that at all. They may say, oh, yeah, the law of Moses is still valid, and, you know, we've got to bring it back. We've got to bring back the part of it that's uh, passed away. We've got to breed the red heifer and reweave the priestly garments and reblend the anointing oil and all of that. But if you believe that the law has passed, and if you believe that the curse of the law has passed, I would just suggest that that is resurrection. Just as we said earlier, Christ in the Gospel of John, I am the resurrection and the life. In Christ, we can do all things. In Christ, we cannot die. If you cannot die, that is resurrection life, I would suggest. And, and we can see that this is the concept of resurrection that Paul was so excited about uh, in his trials. That's why he could equate the hope of Israel to the hope of resurrection over and over again in making his defenses in the trial. It's really easy. It's all Jesus Christ. It's not these convoluted future events that everyone has a different opinion about how they're going to happen or anything else. Christ conquered death in his resurrection, and we, once we are joined to him, we have part in that resurrection. Christ came to take away 
the sin death of the world and I, be- I believe that he did it. I believe Paul thought that he had done it. The gospel is not about physical healing. If it was, we could just say it's a complete and utter failure because every Christian who's ever lived since the Bible was written has physically died. But Jesus wasn't concerned about that. He was concerned about spiritual death or separation from God. Romans chapter 11, the same Paul who we are studying here. Let me flip here to Romans 11, beginning in verse 25. Paul writes, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brethren, so that you might not be wise within yourselves, that hardness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the nations comes in. And so all Israel will be saved, even as it has been written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He's quoting from Isaiah 59, verses 20 and 21. And so... I, I'm just contending that to Paul, the taking away of sin that the law brought was resurrection. That was the work of Messiah, of Jesus Christ, to take away the curse and the burden of law and sin and death, just as he stated right there. And it was going to happen when the Deliverer comes out of Zion. And, of course, that happened, uh, you know, in the first century. Now, I alluded to what the Roman letter was all about. He's writing to non-Judean Christians who had said God was finished with Israel. And Paul's writing this letter He asked the rhetorical question, has God cast off his people whom he foreknew? And he said, absolutely not. That's God forbid in the King James, but absolutely not. Paul's writing this around 57 AD. And these non-Judeans were saying that God had already cut off Israel. So did they think it was the last days of Israel? Apparently so. And they were right. It was the last days of Israel, but it The final day hadn't got there yet. That's what Paul is saying. Well, let's compare this now to our source text, 2 Timothy 2. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul is complaining about these two men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have claimed the resurrection has passed already. Well, if the resurrection occurred when the Deliverer shall come forth out of Zion and turn away ungodliness from Jacob or Israel... Well, then they two are saying the same thing. These people in Rome are saying that God's already done with Israel, and these two, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who are saying that the resurrection has occurred already because they were two events that were to happen at the, as part and parcel of the same uh, work of God. And Paul is denying this. He's, he is saying that there is still a righteous remnant to be saved out of physical Israel. 
And Mark, well, how do we know where Hymenaeus and Philetus, what they taught? Where is that found? Is that actually found in Timothy 2, too? Yeah, that's all we know is that one sentence that they are, that they have caused a lot of trouble because they were saying that the resurrection had passed already. <clears throat> and so but, this but would Jesus, be... Yeah. Jesus' resurrection had passed. He, so, yes. So, yes. so I've, I've been confused about the, re, the term resurrection because usually we think of the resurrection of being Jesus' resurrection on the third day. Uh, well, yeah, that is the resurrection. And then, then there's the, the resurrection of believers that followed uh, Christ's resurrection. The question, Mark, is how far apart did the two resurrections occur? Mm-hmm. And again, today, with the, the uh, centuries of Protestant creeds and traditions, it's regarded as a still future event that involves uh, physical corpses coming up out of the ground or being reconstituted from the mud in the bottom of the sea or from ashes floating around in the atmosphere or one thing or another. matter of great confusion for most people. They, most people do, do most people not, in, in every church, not the uh, same mainline church does not believe that the resurrection is spiritual. Do they, I, I didn't know that many people believe that it was... Uh, a physical out of the ground thing. Uh, yeah, it's apparently in a lot of the Protestant creeds, the physical out of the ground thing. And it, but it, it's not a source of great comfort. You know, uh, I have a good friend in Bakersfield, and he's he's in a large church with a lot of elderly people, and uh, he goes and visits a lot of them who are very sick, and and they're he says they're all terrified of dying. These are people who've been Christians their whole life. But they've been taught that they have to go rot in the ground for thousands of years. You know, and then hope that they get remembered, you know, at the end and get resurrected. Uh, so it's, it's not a real comforting concept. But, mm-hmm. it's, uh, but, I mean, there's a lot of people that will come unglued if you suggest that uh, the promised resurrection of believers is anything other than uh, physical bodies coming out of the ground. And we've already discussed the fact that the, the Pharisees believed that. They believed in the individual bodies coming out of the ground, and they've written thousands of pages of unbelievably ridiculous and confusing commentary on how they're going to deal with so many millions and millions of resurrected people in literal Palestine uh, in the resurrection. Uh, I mean, you know, so, so again, the, as you uh, so astutely picked up on many, many years ago, you know, so many churches in America have become new Pharisees, neo-Pharisees, uh, just repeating the errors of the Pharisees in the first century. And this is just a, a terrible, terrible tragedy. Now, if the believers had any thought of a physical bodily resurrection tied to the end of the universe as as many churches do today and these two guys Hymenaeus and Philetus who we don't know much about but if they're going around saying hey guys you missed it the resurrection's already over do, do you see the problem with that if the resurrection is tied to the universe being consumed 
in fire, the you know the body's coming out of the grave, then being translated into the spiritual realm, and then the physical universe is consumed with fire. If that view of the resurrection, which is very popular today, was what Hymenaeus and Philetus were suggesting had already occurred, uh, I really don't think many people would have uh, paid much attention. They might have called up somebody to commit them to the local asylum because obviously, you know, the, the world hadn't been burned up in fire and all the graves hadn't been opened and there weren't a bunch of animated corpses uh, walking around, um, you know, the Roman world in that time. Do you see what I'm getting at? It may be a little subtle point, but the argument Paul is having with these two is not the nature of the resurrection. You see, it is the timing of the resurrection. Whereas Paul's argument with the Pharisees was not the timing of the resurrection, because they believed and taught that it was imminent back in the first century. They had even changed it from the age that is coming to the age that is about to come, the age of Messiah, and they believed that all the dead would be resurrected at the beginning of Messiah's reign. So Paul and the Pharisees believed in the timing of the resurrection, Mm -hmm. but they totally disagreed as to the nature of the resurrection. Mm. Paul and Hymenaeus agreed on the nature of the resurrection, but they totally disagreed on the timing of the resurrection. So it's, you know, it's a little academic, maybe a little esoteric, a little too, uh, you know, logical, but it's really, really important to grasp that. that, that What those sick old people in the nursing home would like to know is if upon their death they're not immediately judged, good or bad, one or the other. They don't want to put off, they don't want to worry about a delayed judgment. Is that not scriptural, that your judgment takes place when you die, period? Individually, I mean? Yeah, I mean, I believe that when you leave your physical body, you pass outside time, which is a dimension of the physical universe. So there is no before or after or past or future, and that's hard for us to grasp. I mean, I like science fiction movies and time travel movies, but my wife can't stand them. She will not go to one with me because she doesn't like to have her mind boggled that way. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like having it bounced around to get out, you know, to forget about the stress of the last week, whatever. So it's an immediate thing, but, but even, and, and I know that this is a subject pretty dear to you, Chuck, about the idea of judgment, but when we really understand the grace of Jesus Christ and his covenant, the new covenant, the judgment that we face is not a thing to fret over because it's not a weighing in the balance of the good that we've done and the bad that we've done in our lives. None of us would ever pass that. You see, Christ has paid the price. So the judgment consists of... I mean, I don't know, you know, us being pronounced guilty, but Christ, he's already made it better. Uh, I mean, he who believes on me can never die. I am the life and the resurrection. 
And so the judgment is not this fearful thing that it would have been to someone under the law. And, and again, many of these passages that are talking of the judgment are not speaking of this individual judgment of ours at the moment of our passing, but they have been wrested out of context to make people think that's what they're talking about. But in reality, they were talking about the judgment of physical Israel and all those who would not believe that their Messiah had come, who would not believe that the throne of David had been reestablished, who would not believe that the faith of the patriarchs was far more important than the blood offerings of the law of Moses. And, and so, to me, this is the greatest reason not to, to be terrified. I'm, I'm not ready to do it this instant, you know, to physically die. But uh, we should have great hope because of the gospel, uh, that it's not our own shortcomings that are being weighed against the few good things that we might have done. It's it's not that at all. It's 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 the fact that our spiritual leprosy through the blood of Christ, and that's a spiritual thing. Again, you know, I I told my class Sunday, if you had a vial of blood that was the literal blood of Jesus of Nazareth, and you were offering it for sale on eBay, how much would it be worth? You, you see <laughs> that? Oh, it'd be priceless. I says, yeah, it would, but why? If you smeared a drop of it, I mean, could you guarantee somebody eternal life by smearing that on somebody? And then I got just silence, you see. <laughs> because it's, it's not the, it is about the blood of Christ, but it's not about the physical blood of Christ. It's about the spiritual healing that he accomplished through his spiritual suffering. And that's, that's an accomplished thing. It's done. So we don't have to go to our graves terrified that Christ hasn't finished his work of redemption and resurrection. I mean, he, he announces that, that it, is a, it is an accomplished thing. So, again, we just want to look at this. At the, the, uh, if we consider the fulfilled view that Christ is the sum of all spiritual things, that Christ is the idea that God had from before the beginning of the physical creation, and that the physical creation is not the end. It was just the means to bring about the eternal purpose of God, which was the eternal spiritual kingdom, the perfect dwelling place for himself on earth, the perfect bride for his son, the perfect body for his son, the perfect temple where God and man can commune together as one. I mean, that's what the Bible says. That's how Genesis begins, and that's how Revelation ends. It's way simpler than these convoluted schemes of prophetic interpretation that clog all the airwaves of religious radio with this babble. It, I mean, that doesn't bring hope to anybody. This is good, good news. So, just to wrap this part up, if we say the resurrection has occurred, I mean, some would call that heresy or heretical, but 
that is no more heretical than saying that God canceled his promises to Old Covenant Israel because he said he could not, he would not. Paul repeated that he could not, that he would not. It's just as heretical to claim that God just, well, gave up on Israel and canceled all those promises. To me, that's heresy because that's going against the revealed nature of God. Or if we say that the old law still remains, and this is what our Zionist friends are working towards, is to restore the law of Moses in all of its glory. And, you know, they believe that all of us will have to travel to Jerusalem to worship again here if they can help bring about Armageddon and then the Millennial Kingdom because God needs all the help he can get after all. You know, then we'll all be traveling over there to to offer these bloody sacrifices and things uh, again. I mean, that to me, that's heresy. <laughs> so, anyway, just wanted to introduce this subject to show that far from showing that a fulfilled view of God's promises is heresy, the fact that Hymenaeus and Philetus were teaching a, a resurrection that already occurred, it's quite revealing about Paul's understanding of resurrection and the, the spiritual nature of it. This, again, it goes against so many creeds, so many statements of faith and traditions, but, you know, biblically, you just can't find a consistent way to mix that in there. A deferred resurrection, a physical resurrection, a complete separation of all those promises God made to Israel over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to the fulfillment that we see here in the book of Acts that Paul was so excited about pronouncing here at his trials. So we ought to appeal to the Bible only, to Scripture only, uh, and uh, not be too concerned about these human traditions um, when it when they differ with the Bible says and what we see uh, Paul teaching here. All right, well, I, I talked way too long on that, but uh, it's kind of a logical thing you have to get through. Any any other thoughts or comments here? I remember Bermstein said, Christ plus nothing. That's his emphasis. I think that's what you're saying, too. The resurrection is ultimate. It's not a separate event. It is Jesus Christ, and he is here with us now. He hasn't gone away billions of light years out beyond the furthest galaxy so that we can sit here and fret and worry whether he's coming back or when he's coming back, because he came back and he, through, through the Holy Spirit, he indwells us, and we have been joined to him as one. Uh, that's what Paul wrote. It, this is a great mystery. The, the man shall leave his parents, and he shall be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak of Christ and the church. We have been joined to Christ as one flesh, as the body and the head. And if we are joined to Christ, we are partakers of his eternal nature. And that's why we don't have to tremble in fear of this judgment, because not many of us could stand to get what we truly deserve, you see. But the law was 
that way. It was a terrible thing, and they, they did need to tremble and shake in fear. So, you know, I'm just suggesting that the resurrection is much simpler than all of these uh, religious traditions have, uh, have created something new and different, and still in the future, the resurrection is Jesus Christ. And if we are in him, we partake of that, we can do all things in that, and what else could you sit around in a pew waiting for? Okay, well, thank you, Mark. This is a good place to end, I think, and uh, we'll look forward to continuing and wrapping up our very intense and enlightening study here of Acts. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.